One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Cardinals at Falcons. Kickoff Sunday, January 1st, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 42. Game Overview by Hilo. Colt McCoy cleared the concussion protocol on Wednesday and is in line to regain his starting duties against the Falcons. James Conner missed Wednesday's practice with an illness. Greg Dortch receiving lines in games Rondell Moore missed, and he also played more than 70% of the offensive snaps this season. 7 for 63, 4 for 55 and 1, 9 for 80, 9 for 103, and 10 for 98. Rondell Moore is now on injured reserve. James Conner snap rates and opportunities over the previous six Arizona games. 96% and 24, 77% and 19 in a blowout loss to the 49ers, 97% and 28, 95% and 22, 91% and 21, and 97% and 23. Tyler Algier saw the most running back opportunities of his short career last week with 23. There is hidden upside in the variance associated with late-season personnel decisions on teams out of playoff contention. Drake London continues to see an insane share of the pass game work in Atlanta commanding a robust 37.5% team target market share over Desmond Ritter's first two NFL starts. How Arizona will try to win. The Cardinals held a 63.1% overall pass rate and 39.25 pass attempts per game in the four games in which Colt McCoy started this season, compared to 62.24% and 39.8 season averages, respectively. Now compare those values to the 62.5% pass rate and 45 pass attempts in Trace McSorley's start last week, 4 pass attempts in overtime. That tells me that hashtag fake sharp Kingsbury has largely not changed his offense through three separate quarterbacks this season, running the same horizontally spread baseline regardless of who is under center. Expect the same up-tempo, one-dimensional base Kingsbury offense with a highly inefficient quarterback now at the helm. The most notable aspects of that realization involve the slot wide receiver and the running back, each of whom can be relied upon to see significant volume in this offense. Those two players are Greg Dortch and James Conner, whom, as you will see in a minute, are set up well against a weak defense, 30th in total DVOA, 30th in DVOA against the pass, and 23rd in DVOA against the run. James Conner has been the epitome of a workhorse back over the previous six contests, averaging 22.83 running back opportunities per game on an average of 92.2% of the offensive snaps during that span. He has also scored in every single one of those contests, with seven total touchdowns across those six games. Connor missed practice on Wednesday with an illness, which is clearly worth monitoring, but I think it's safe to expect another massive workload for Connor in a beatable matchup, should he be well enough to play. The pure rushing matchup yields a well-above-average 4.595 net-adjusted line yards metric against an Atlanta defense that ranks 31st in adjusted line yards allowed on defense. Add in the floor of 3-5 to targets with ceiling for much, much more, and we're left with one of the safer, cost-considered backs on the slate. Rookie Keontae Ingram should continue to serve as a borderline emergency back outside of Connor not being ready for a full workload. The Cardinals operate primarily from 11 personnel but increased their 12 personnel rates slightly last week. This is more likely to be due to disciplinary action rather than a changing offensive dynamic after it was revealed that Marquise Brown was held to his lowest snap rate of the season for being late to a team meeting. The team also showed us that they are about done with the Robbie Anderson and A.J. Green experiments 
as they both saw their lowest snap rate of the season in healthy games last week. That shifted Greg Dortch into the slot role while Hopkins and Hollywood handled the perimeter, something I would expect to continue into Week 17 with the Cardinals eliminated from playoff contention, as in it doesn't make much sense to continue to feed grizzled veterans offensive snaps heading into the offseason. Rookie tight end Trey McBride should operate as the primary pass-catching tight end, with Max Williams and Steven Anderson reserved for modest primary blocking roles. The Falcons seed a deep 8.4 defensive ADOT and generate pressure at the lowest rate in the league this season, providing a path for volume to flow where it's most natural for the Cardinals. How Atlanta will try to win The Falcons are one of three teams to have a pass rate over expectation below league average in every game played this season. They combine those low pass rates with a bottom 10 pace of play and are clearly attempting to figure out their future after benching Marcus Mariota in favor of rookie Desmond Ritter. As we've discussed earlier in various places, Desmond Ritter is closer to a pocket passer than he is to a running quarterback, with mobility tied more closely to the ability to escape the pocket. That ability has translated to a very Patrick Mahomesian six carries and four carries across his first two NFL starts, which is the quarterback we have most closely compared him to from the perspectives of mobility and pocket awareness. In addition to the change at quarterback, Tyler Algier has taken on a greater load at running back of late. The spry rookie fifth-round running back has played equal or greater offensive snaps than backfield mate Corderell Patterson in six of the previous seven games played since CPAT returned from injured reserve. Beyond the relative changing of the guard at running back, it appears as if the team is content to see what they have in their rookie back, who has also seen an increase to his snap rate coming from passing situations recently. The surge in opportunity for Algier culminated in 23 opportunities in Week 16, the most of his short career. The Falcons have an out built into Patterson's contract after this season, meaning there is a possibility the increased run for Algier is an opportunity to see what life after CPAT looks like but there's no true way of knowing how the Falcons will handle the situation over the season's final two games. That said, the additional variance introduced to the situation carries significant upside for Algier and nothing but additional downside for Patterson, something that is important to understand in highly variant situations like these. The matchup on the ground yields a well above average 4.63 net adjusted line yards metric against a Cardinals defense allowing the fifth most fantasy points per game to opposing backfields. 27.2 on the backs of 17 combined touchdowns and the fifth most receptions allowed to the position. Rookie wide receiver Drake London has commanded an elite 31.7% targets per route run rate and 29.3% team target market share on the season and has seen a target on 37.5% of Desmond Ritter's 56 combined pass attempts over the previous two games. The rest of the Atlanta pass-catching competition consists of guys like Damier Bird, Cotterell Hodge, Frank Darby, Parker Hesse, Michael Pruitt, and Anthony Ferkser, meaning the talented London has very little competition for targets in the low pass volume offense. But beyond that, London was one of the most pro-ready wide receivers to come out of the 2022 draft class, capable of garnering a more intricate route tree than many others in his class. The only other pass catcher to command a near every down role is veteran Olamide Zacchaeus, who at 5'8 and 188 pounds, has played little more than depth receiving option during his four-year career in Atlanta. Most notably here are the absences of Byron Murphy and Buda Baker in the Arizona secondary, each of whom should be regarded as the most talented players on the back end. Fill-in cornerback Marco Wilson picked up a neck injury last week after picking Tom Brady off twice. He failed to practice on Wednesday and looks headed for a missed game this week, 
that leaves the once elite Cardinal secondary extremely thin. Likeliest game flow. Neither of these teams have anything to play for in Week 17. The Cardinals have been eliminated from the postseason for weeks, and the Falcons punched their tickets to the golf course when they lost to the Ravens last week. That said, there have been some interesting rumors swirling in Arizona surrounding their recently extended head coach, and it's fair to say that his four-year run as head honcho in the Valley of the Sun could be coming to an end. Either way, chalk this one up to a pride match. Since we know how each team is likeliest to attack with such a high degree of certainty, and since neither defense is particularly suited to slow those things down, it is likeliest we get a game where each team can kind of just do what they'd like to do. The ultimate game flow comes down to scoring, clearly, leaving the micro aspect of this idea of predicting game flow difficult in a spot where we can primarily think of it as weakness on weakness. Each team has a chance to control the environment, but both teams also lack the ability to generate many splash plays. Basically, expect additional offensive plays to be run from scrimmage, but expect the chances at that game environment completely taking off to be lower than in other spots on this slate. As such, the primary spots to look for fantasy relevance are the spots we can project volume. Bears at Lions. Kickoff Sunday, January 1st, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 52. Game Overview by Hilo. Justin Fields was removed from the injury report entirely this week. Good news for the upside of this game. Chase Claypool and Equinemius St. Brown returned to limited sessions on Thursday after missing Wednesday's practice. Everything we've seen from Chicago indicates the team will continue pushing through Week 18 as they figure out what works best for the future of the franchise. Dante Pettis was downgraded from limited to DNP on Thursday for the Bears. The biggest name on the Detroit injury report is center Frank Ragnow, who maintained his status as DNP through Thursday with a foot injury. This game carries immense upside with the primary uncertainties introduced through the middle of the season surge from the Lions' run defense and the poor rushing output from Justin Fields last week against Buffalo. More on these two aspects later. The reality of this game is that the Lions should be able to move the ball in any way they choose, with the Bears likely needing increased rushing output and a few deep completions from Fields to stay in it. How Chicago will try to win Chicago is one of only three teams to have a below-average pass rate over expectation value in every game played this season, which should continue through the end of the season, considering their offensive personnel. As we've discussed, the Bears appear steadfast in their resolution to treat this season as an extended preseason, tinkering with various aspects of both sides of the ball throughout the year. Those sentiments were reinforced further this week when head coach Matt Eberflus told the media that the team would continue with business as usual through the end of the season and had no intention of resting Justin Fields, even with his shoulder injury. Expect a motivated and hungry Chicago team here, with the biggest influence on their fantasy prospectus being the ability of Justin Fields to play as he'd like to. Last week against the Bills, Fields was contained to just 11 yards rushing on only 7 carries, leading to the first game with under 20 fantasy points since Week 6. The biggest concern rests with whether that lower rushing output was more caused by the Bills' heavy zone and spy scheme, or that it is due to the lingering injuries from Fields. From tape and reports out of Chicago, I would say with a high degree of confidence that it was more caused by the Bills than Fields' health. That's good news for the upside from this game environment as a whole, as games involving the Bears have a much higher fantasy expectation in games where Fields is aggressive and able to escape the pocket with his legs. Khalil Herbert returned to his standard snap rate in Week 16 in his first game off injured reserve, playing 41% of the offensive snaps and handling 9 running back opportunities. It's fair to expect more of the same against the Lions, 
denting lead back David Montgomery's upside slightly in the process. Montgomery had been a modicum of stability for the Bears in the absence of Herbert, putting up 14.3 fantasy points or more in each of the four contests played without Herbert, a threshold he eclipsed just twice throughout the rest of the season. The final piece of the Chicago rushing attack is very clearly quarterback Justin Fields, who had rushed for 60 yards or more in every game since Week 6 prior to last week's 7-11-0 line on the ground against the Bills. All indications point to a return to increased involvement on the ground against a Lions defense highly susceptible to mobile quarterbacks due to the high rates of man coverage and elevated blitz rates. The Bears appear likely to get both Chase Claypool and Equinemius St. Brown back from injury this week after the two return to a limited session on Thursday. That said, we've seen the Bears utilize a head-scratching six-man rotation at wide receiver since Darnell Mooney was lost for the season back in Week 12. That leaves only tight end Cole Komet as likely to operate in a near-every-down role amongst pass catchers, capping the upside of all parties involved in the process. The Lions have allowed opponents to work the deeper areas of the field with ease, seeding the deepest defensive dot in the league at 9.7. The second-worst Steelers are down at 9.1, a massive gap in the average depth of target against. That keeps the relative ceiling higher than in other spots with low expected snap rates, but any Chicago pass catcher is a tough bet outside of Komet. What that does do, however, is serve to open up the potential game environment quite a bit as Fields and the Bears are capable in deep passing game against an opponent susceptible in that area. How Detroit will try to win The Lions increased their 12 personnel utilization last week through the addition of tight end Garrett Griffin to the mix, making it four tight ends in the rotation. A simultaneous inability to stop the run or run the football surely kept head coach Dan Campbell up for nights pondering how his team virtually squandered away their hard work over the previous seven weeks to the Panthers. Either way, their Week 16 loss to the Panthers marked the fifth consecutive game of 37 pass attempts or more for Jared Goff, as this team has transitioned to a much more aggressive unit than they had been to start the season. The game plan over the second half of the season has shifted to a more aerially focused concentration on offense and a focus on eliminating the run on defense. The problem with that against the Bears is that their defense continues to play heavy rates of man coverage with above-average blitz rates, which exposes their second level to mobile quarterbacks. Not a good thing for a game against Justin Fields. Finally, it should be the Lions pushing the pace in this one against a Chicago team ranked in the bottom five in the pace of play. Jamal Williams saw his lowest snap rate of the season in an extremely negative game script last week, finishing the game with just nine running back opportunities on a 24% snap share. DeAndre Swift stepped into the highest snap rate share, 56%, while Justin Jackson filled in for the rest. Furthermore, Williams has been held to 37% of the offensive snaps or fewer in each of the previous four contests as the Lions have transitioned to a more pass-heavy offense. I would expect the frustrating split in running back usage to continue as the team appears comfortable with all three backs in defined roles. Williams, the preferred early down and goal line option, Swift to mix in on early downs on the clear lead passing down back, and Jackson an across-the-board change of pace option. The matchup is clearly a positive, yielding a well-above-average 4.67 net-adjusted line yards metric against the Chicago defense seeding 27.4 DK points per game to opposing backfields, including 18 total touchdowns allowed to the position. The increased emphasis on 12 personnel offensive alignments has affected the snap rates of everyone, from Amon Ross St. Brown down to Khalif Raymond. Furthering that spread has been the insertion of rookie wide receiver Jamison Williams, who continues to operate in a situational and downfield role. That leaves St. Brown and DJ Chark as the only pass catchers likely to operate in near every down roles, 
likely in the 85-90% to 90% snap range. The Bears' defense operates with above-average man coverage rates, which, when combined with a general lack of top-tier talent on the defensive side of the ball and an extremely low blitz rate, has led to a below-average, worse, completion rate allowed and moderate 7.8 defensive ADOT. Those numbers play directly into what Amon Ra brings to the table, which is a likely contributor to why the second-year electric receiver put up a 10-for-119 line against the Bears on 11 targets back in Week 10. Khalif Raymond has also not gone away, mixing in to share the wide receiver three role with Josh Reynolds over the last month of play, with his snap rate more than doubling to around 30% over the previous two contests. Tight end Shane Zilstra came out of nowhere to score three touchdowns last week, but he's typically been held around 35% of the offensive snaps in conjunction with Brock Wright, James Mitchell, and even Garrett Griffin, the latter of whom saw his first action of the season in Week 16. Considering the game environment from last week, there is a chance we see the team fall back into a three-man rotation at tight end, which could theoretically open up some additional snaps for Chark and St. Brown. Likeliest Game Flow So much of the potential from this game environment revolves around Justin Fields and his ability in the run game. The Lions are highly likely to find offensive success in some fashion, considering the struggles of the Bears' defense, forcing a high reliance on Justin Fields to return suit considering so much of the offensive dynamism flows directly through him. Whether or not the dip in rushing output last week was a result of the foot injury or Buffalo's spy scheme is important moving forward in what has amounted to an experimental season for the Bears. As in, we know the upside that Fields brings to the table with his legs if healthy, and the Lions do not have the athleticism nor defensive scheme to suppress Fields' rushing upside like the Bills did, assuming the Bills were simply able to keep him under wraps and it wasn't caused by his foot injury. The other interesting aspect from this game is the Detroit run defense, which had performed at an extremely high level for almost 10 consecutive weeks before being absolutely embarrassed by the Panthers last week. I would tentatively expect the Lions to get back on track here. That said, this game environment clearly carries immense upside due to the state of each offense, great, and the state of each defense, not so great. Jaguars at Texans. Kickoff Sunday, January 1st, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 43.5. Game Overview by Hilo. For all intents and purposes, the Jaguars play a meaningless game in Week 17 against the Texans. Titans and the Jaguars play a winner-take-all Week 18 matchup for the division title. That said, and although a long shot, the Jaguars could theoretically back into the 7th and final playoff spot in the AFC with a win this week and a loss to the Titans in Week 18 just a 6% chance of that happening. The Texans have played much better defensively of late, ranking as a top three unit per DVOA over the previous five weeks. Travis Etienne and Zay Jones in particular are set up well to take advantage of Houston's defensive deficiencies, assuming they play a full allotment of snaps. Not a ton to love from the Houston side of the ball, regardless of whether or not the Jags play their starters for a normal allotment of snaps. How Jacksonville will try to win. There's a lot going on here, plain and simple. On one hand, Doug Peterson spoke Tuesday about not wanting to rest his guys for a meaningless game, and his team is extremely young, opening up the door to the Jaguars operating from a business-as-usual standpoint. On the other hand, Doug Peterson rested his starters in a meaningless game prior to the postseason when with the Eagles. Basically, we could see everything from full snap rates for the primary skill position players to lightning loads for the big men up front and Travis Etienne, players that take the most consistent abuse. Shout out to Mikey for bringing this possibility up. Two primary players playing the first half and sitting the second, to skill position players sitting entirely. Yeah, happy, happy, joy, joy. Shout out to the Ren and Stimpy fans in the room. 
With all of that in mind, we have a pretty clear picture regarding how the Jaguars are likeliest to attack if at full strength as the team has exhibited fantasy-friendly tendencies of late, playing an elevated pace of play, 7th fastest first half pace of play, with more concentrated offense than they started the year with amongst Christian Kirk, Zay Jones, Evan Ingram, and Travis Etienne. Furthermore, six of their top eight games and pass rate over expectation have come over the previous six weeks, and the team has moved away from the backfield committee it started the season with in favor of a pure workhorse and change of pace setup, Travis Etienne in the workhorse role, with Michael Hasty in the change of pace role. Head coach and offensive mastermind Doug Peterson is one of the more forward-leaning offensive minds in the game, capable in both game planning and game management. If we take his words from this week at face value, expect an aggressive game plan from the jump as this team is much more effective when playing with a lead where they can keep the offense away from one dimensionality. As mentioned above, this backfield is now Travis Etienne's following the mid-season departure of James Robinson. His past game involvement remains non-elite but floor-boosting in the sense that he has not seen more than the three targets in a game since week seven, but his red zone role and overall volume has increased dramatically since the departure of Robinson. To emphasize that point, Etienne ranks fourth amongst running backs in red zone carries this season at 39, more than Saquon Barkley, Derrick Henry, Nick Chubb, Dalvin Cook, Josh Jacobs, and Joe Mixon, to name a few, yet has only four rushing scores. This week, he plays a Texan team that allowed the most rushing scores in the league at 18 through 15 games played. The pure rushing matchup yields a slightly above average 4.435 net adjusted line yards metric in what should be considered one of the premier rushing matchups in the NFL. Houston's defense is a bit of an enigma, no more so than with their past defense. They have held opponents to a below average 63.54% completion rate, but have faced the 10th deepest defensive ADOT. They have also managed to allow only five receiving touchdowns to wide receivers all season, which is two less than the second place Broncos. I can't find any reason why that is nothing more than variance, and likely due in large part to the fact that teams have simply been able to run all over them this season, but it is startling nonetheless. The low blitz rates and elevated zone coverages have allowed opponents to rip them deep all season, with spotty pressure rates up front allowing receivers the time to find holes in the zone. All of that is important because it should serve to narrow the expected ranges of outcomes for the primary pass catchers on the Jaguars' offense, with Christian Kirk and Evan Ingram sporting much higher yards per route run values against man coverage, 2.33 for Kirk and 1.91 for Ingram, this season than they have against zone, 1.71 for Kirk and 1.39 for Ingram whereas Zay Jones leads the team in targets, receptions, and has seen the deepest ADOT of the three against zone, and has scored four touchdowns against zone versus one against man. Marvin Jones has become somewhat of an afterthought in this offense, going as far as seeding snaps to Tim Jones and Jamal Agnew since the team's Week 11 bye. How Houston Will Try to Win The Texans began experimenting with a two-quarterback system similar to what the Saints have utilized in New Orleans three weeks ago. During that stretch, Davis Mills has pass attempts of 28, 24, and 21 on snap rates of 78, 83, and 50%. Furthermore, Houston ran above league average total offensive plays in each of those three games, further highlighting how the shift in offensive design has affected how the offense is being run. As in, this team now wants to control the clock through high rush rates, slow pace of play, and methodical gains in a maddening game of keep away, sapping the fantasy upside out of all parties involved along the way. To emphasize that statement, considering the following, the only fantasy-relevant score to come from any single member of the Houston offense over the previous three weeks was Chris Moore's 25.4 DK point game three weeks ago without Brandon Cooks in the lineup. To say this squad likely needs outside influence prior to dialing up aggression in its current state is probably an immense understatement. Even with the elevated rush rates we've seen from the Texans over the previous three weeks, 
the team has devolved into a messy three-headed timeshare in the backfield. But wait, it gets better. Royce Freeman came off the street two weeks ago to be the lead back. Yippee! Expect all of Freeman, Daria Gumbawale, and Rex Burkhead to be involved. The pure rushing matchup yields a laughably low 3.995 net adjusted line yards metric against the Jacksonville defense holding opposing backfields to just 4.01 yards per carry. Things don't get any more fantasy-friendly from this pass offense, with only Brandon Cooks and Chris Moore likely to play in near-every-down roles for an offense that has averaged just 29 pass attempts per game over the previous three weeks. Expect Philip Dorsett and Amari Rogers to split the available wide receiver three snaps, while the tight end conglomerate of Jordan Aikens, Brevin Jordan, and rookie Tegan Quidhoriano divvy up the approximately 130% of available tight end snaps. The team has been right around 30% 12 personnel rates each of the previous three weeks since the shift in offensive identity occurred. Likeliest Game Flow I don't think we can say with a high degree of confidence what the likeliest game flow is, considering there are so many variables at play. That said, the likeliest game flow, should the Jaguars treat this game like any other game this season, involves a script where their offense is able to dictate the game on their terms, with volume likeliest flowing through Travis Etienne and Zay Jones. As mentioned above, the Jaguars are a much better team when they aren't chasing the game and instead dictating the flow on their terms, which is likelier than not if they play their starters throughout and approach the game plan with aggression. There is something to be said for the thought of maintaining cohesion heading into a situation where they must win five consecutive games in order to hoist the Lombardi. Look, there are pros and cons of resting primary pieces as well as playing an entire game, and I can't pretend to know which way Doug Peterson will lean here but we do know the kind of ceiling this Jaguars team has exhibited over the previous month of play. We also have a good idea of the level of upside this Texans team brings, as in non-existent, meaning we are left with a very clear path of attack. Play Jaguars or stay away. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Broncos at Chiefs. Kickoff Sunday, January 1st, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 45. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. The Chiefs still have a chance at the number one seed in the AFC if they win both of their remaining games. Russell Wilson has a chance to use the last two weeks of the season to prove recently fired head coach Nathaniel Hackett was the problem with the offense. The Chiefs games have been significantly higher scoring on the road than at home. The Broncos' defense has fallen off significantly after a dominant start to the season. How Denver will try to win The Broncos' offense has not had many bright spots this season. One of the only times they looked consistently competent, however, was a two-and-a-half quarter stretch against the Chiefs in the first matchup between these teams. The Broncos scored 28 points in the last 32 minutes of that game, which was their highest point total of the season. Denver was embarrassed on Christmas Day losing 51-14 to the lowly Rams on national television and promptly firing their head coach Nathaniel Hackett, a move that many had been calling for since very early in the season. One of the bigger storylines of this NFL season has been the fall from grace of Russell Wilson, after the Broncos gave up a boatload of assets and a $235 million guaranteed contract for his services this offseason, he has rewarded them with one of the worst seasons of any QB in the league. There has been a lot of debate on where the blame lies between Wilson and Hackett, and now Wilson has the last couple of weeks of the season to try to paint the narrative that he wasn't the main problem. The Broncos rank middle of the league in pass rate, 
and have been relatively conservative most of the year, despite an offseason filled with promises of an explosive downfield attack that played with a fast tempo. Denver has had a lot of injuries among their skill position players this season, with their backfield now consisting of older replacement level or lower running backs, and most of their ancillary receivers being out at this point. Making matters worse, their dynamic receiving duo of Cortland Sutton and Jerry Judy has battled injuries for much of the season, and last week against the Rams was the first time the two of them were both healthy for a full game since week 8. There are a lot of unknowns for a team when they remove their head coach, especially when it is an offensive-minded head coach like Hackett, who clearly had his imprint on a lot of what they are doing. There is some guesswork involved, but I would expect the Broncos to play with a bit more tempo and throw more than we have seen in the past as they look to turn the page from Hackett. The majority of their targets will likely flow through Judy and Sutton against the Chiefs defense that has been beatable for wide receivers this season, and due to the staggering talent gap between those two and the rest of the Broncos' options, especially if rookie tight end Greg Dulcich is unable to play due to his hamstring injury. The Broncos really have nothing to lose at this point, so hoping to beat the Chiefs with a conservative approach seems counterproductive to what their main goal should be in these last two games of turning the page from the boring and disappointing Hackett era. How Kansas City will try to win Denver's defense was downright dominant to start the season, holding eight of their first nine opponents below 20 points. Since then, they have allowed five of their last six opponents to score 22 or more points, giving up 51 to the Rams last week and 34 to the Chiefs three weeks ago. The Rams' debacle was especially eye-opening. After Los Angeles had barely been able to move the ball in their previous two games against the lowly Raiders and Packers defenses, and then were able to basically do whatever they wanted for four quarters against Denver. The Chiefs' offense is second in the NFL in scoring and matches up very well against the Broncos, as Denver's strength is the perimeter of their secondary and their pass rush but the Chiefs' offense flows significantly through the middle of the field, tight ends, running backs, and slot receivers, and Patrick Mahomes is one of the best QBs in the league under pressure. These matchup situations were on full display in the first game between these teams, as the Chiefs built a 27-0 lead and moved the ball at will against the Denver defense. Patrick Mahomes made some uncharacteristic turnovers that let Denver back in the game later, something that we should not expect again from him. The Chiefs should once again have a similar game plan with targets flowing through the short and middle areas of the field to Travis Kelsey, Jarek McKinnon, and Juju Smith-Schuster. Kansas City leads the NFL in pass rate over expectation for the season, but has pulled it back some the last few weeks. Denver's run defense has been a weak link for much of the year and looked abysmal last week against a poor Rams offensive line and running game that has struggled all year, so it would not be surprising to see the Chiefs lean a bit more on the run in this game than we might usually expect, especially considering the turnover issues they had in the first matchup with Denver. Likeliest Game Flow An interesting tidbit I discovered as I researched this game was the tendency of Chiefs games to be far less explosive when they are playing at home, especially as we get deeper into the season. The last four home Chiefs games finished with point totals of 34, 36, 44, and 37, an average of 37.8 points per game. On the flip side, the last four Chiefs road games finished with point totals of 54, 62, 51, and 57, an average of 56 points per game. The Chiefs offense has been consistent and has scored 24 plus points in seven of the eight games referenced which tells us that the key factor at play here appears to be Kansas City's defensive performance. The Broncos' offense has been very poor all season, and a tough road matchup against a motivated unit will prove a very difficult test. 
In the first matchup between these teams, the Chiefs built a huge lead and the Broncos made a run to make things close in the second half. Given the huge splits in performance for the Chiefs' defense, a similar start to this game seems most likely with the caveat that the Broncos are much less likely to have the offensive explosion this week that they had the first time around. The Chiefs' offense has led its last three home games at halftime by scores of 17-3, 13-3, and 20-7. A similar first half for this game seems likely, with the Chiefs' offense rolling and the Broncos' defense playing out the string after an embarrassing performance against the Rams. The Chiefs trust their defense much more at home and don't push the tempo quite as much or force things once they have built a lead, meaning the game could slow down in the second half due to the possible inefficiency from the Broncos as they attempt to come back and the Chiefs being content to take their time and be methodical as they attempt to simply win and move on. There is an outside chance that the Broncos offense has a dead cat bounce in the absence of Hackett and is able to put up some early points to force the Chiefs to put their foot on the gas, but the history of this offense this season and the strong home performances of the Chiefs defense make that more of an outlier scenario than an expected one. Dolphins at Patriots Kickoff Sunday, January 1st, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 41. Game Overview by JM. Teddy Bridgewater will be starting for the Dolphins, which is less likely to change their approach than it is to change their chances of success. The Patriots are at a disadvantage on offense, but are aware enough of their shortcomings that they aren't necessarily trying to win the game in this way. Both teams are selectively aggressive, but each team will also recognize that the team that makes fewer mistakes will likely be the team that wins this game. Not many paths to this game blowing up. How Miami will try to win. Miami ranks 6th in pass rate over expectation on the season, and is one of only 8 teams in the NFL this year throwing the ball at a higher rate than their expected pass play rate. What a strange season. But we've also seen some strange bounce-arounds in their play-calling tendencies, with this team somewhat hard-headedly choosing to throw the ball on 80% of their competitive plays against the poor run defense of the Texans in Week 12, after which McDaniel said he'd made a mistake remaining aggressive so deep into that game, a game in which the Dolphins' aggressive stance ultimately gave the Texans some final, gasping opportunities for life. Following that up with a predictably pass-heavy game plan against the run-tough 49ers, 33 Tua attempts in a game in which the Dolphins ran only 46 plays, and following that up with pass attempt totals of 28, 30, 25 against the soft run defenses of the Chargers, the elite all-around defense of the Bills, and the soft run defense of the Packers. Peeling back the layers further, the Dolphins suffered from low play volume in all three of those games, with 51, 59, and 50 plays, good for pass attempt rates of 54.9%, 50.8%, and 50%. The Dolphins now enter a must-win game for their dimming playoff hopes on the road against a Patriots defense that ranks 10th in run defense DVOA and 3rd in pass defense DVOA, with Teddy Bridgewater almost certainly set to start under center after Tua Tagovailoa entered concussion protocol on Monday following another potentially botched head injury sequence. Bridgewater led the Dolphins to a pair of losses earlier this year with three touchdown passes and three interceptions against lesser defenses in the Bengals, stepping in for a concussed Tua, and the Vikings, replacing Skylar Thompson on the Dolphins' fourth drive of the game. That second game was particularly interesting, with the Dolphins calling 17 pass plays to only 6 rush plays with Skylar under center, then continuing this pass-leaning approach when they switch to Bridgewater. Put it all together and the Dolphins are likely to plug and play with Bridgewater, approaching this game the same way they would have approached it with Tua under center, but with the question of exactly how they would have chosen to attack with Tua under center not necessarily coming with an obvious answer. 
Anything from a pass-heavy game plan to a totally balanced game plan is in the mix here, with only a run-dominant game plan easy for us to remove from our lists. The Dolphins have leaned primarily on Raheem Mostert on the ground over the last month, giving him the majority of the running back snaps and a wide-ranging level of touches over his last four games, 7, 11, 17, and 8 carries. Though last week, Jeff Wilson re-emerged for four more snaps than Mostert and nine carries of his own. Given the low likelihood of a run-heavy game plan from the Dolphins and the elite nature of the Patriots' run defense, as explored repeatedly in this space, the Pats are on track to finish top three in fewest running back rushing touchdowns allowed for the seventh time in eight years. The Dolphins' run game should function more as a balancer for their passing attack than as a means to the Dolphins winning the game. In order to win the game, the key pieces, of course, will be Tyreek Hill, recent target counts of 9, 14, 10, 13, and 6, and Jalen Waddell, recent target counts of 10, 5, 4, 7, and 6. As explored in this space throughout the year, the Patriots play an aggressive brand of defense that leads to occasional big plays, six deepest average depth of target face this season, but also leads to low drive success from opponents, fifth lowest opponent drive success rate, and second fewest points allowed per drive making it difficult for any one player to truly take over the game against them. Expect the Patriots to also mix and match coverages in an effort to make it look to Bridgewater like the wide receiver they are covering is actually open. Said differently, the Patriots, who capitalize on their adaptability and variable looks, will know that they can't cover both Waddle and Hill every play, so rather than worrying too much about trying to take away both players on every single play, they will likely be comfortable giving up some big plays, knowing that they can also a. leverage the confidence generated by these big plays to lure Bridgewater into mistakes, and b. leverage the slow-developing nature of these big plays to get some drive-killing sacks. Because the Patriots don't care as much about yards allowed, the Dolphins may be able to pick up some chunk plays, but long drives and easy scoring opportunities should ultimately be at a premium. How New England will try to win the Patriots have been a team in need of identity on offense this year, ranking 25th in pass offense DVOA and 21st in run offense DVOA, while ranking 28th in drive success rate and 25th in points per drive. Due to the sleeper success of Ramondre Stevenson as a fantasy play this year, drafted in the late 90s throughout most of the best ball summer, priced in the low 5K range on DraftKings early in the year, there is a perception around this team as a relatively high-end run offense, but this has not actually been the case with the Pats ranked 18th in adjusted line yards, and Ramondre topping 25.1 draft king points only one time all year. The Patriots rank middle of the pack in pass rate over expectation, and, true to form, have shown a willingness to be adaptable from game to game, with Mac Jones throwing the ball as many as 39 times and as few as 27 times in games this year. This week, the Patriots are taking on a Miami defense that ranks 9th in DVOA against the run, compared to 23rd against the pass which has led to the Dolphins facing the 6th highest opponent pass play rate in the league. That stat should come with an asterisk, however, as the strange NFL season that has yielded low pass rates across the board as the Dolphins holding the 6th spot in spite of facing a pass play on only 60.96% of opponent plays, which is typically closer to the average NFL pass play rate. In other words, we shouldn't expect Miami opponents to go pass heavy in the true sense of that term, so much as we should expect them to go pass heavy for this year. Furthermore, the Patriots are fully aware of their offensive shortcomings and understand that their best means to winning a game is to avoid mistakes on offense and leverage their defense to put them in position for victories. The Patriots' backfield has remained a one-man show. Ramondre played 91.1% of snaps last week, 
albeit without the guaranteed schemed pass game involvement we were seeing earlier this year. Recent target counts of 2, 2, and 2, after seeing 6 or more targets in 5 of 6 games, while the Patriots' pass catchers have taken on the rotational usage that used to be reserved for the backfield. To that point, I've seen write-ups this week to the effect that Tyquan Thornton has supplanted Nelson Aguilar as the number 3 wideout after Thornton played 52 snaps last week to Aguilar's 19, but this is about the 8th time I've seen a write-up like this about a Patriots wideout this year. The fact of the matter is, Jacoby Myers will continue to be an offensive staple, 100% of snaps last week, while all other pass catchers will be subject to the game-planning whims of the unsinkable duo of Matt Patricia and Joe Judge. Likeliest Game Flow Only Justin Fields and Lamar Jackson, in games in which the Patriots played high rates of man coverage and got torched on the ground by these quarterbacks, have topped 24 points in New England this year, with the Patriots holding Josh Allen, in a switch to high zone rates versus a mobile quarterback, 24 points, and Joe Burrow to 22. Meanwhile, the Patriots' offense hasn't topped 20 points since their Thanksgiving game at Minnesota, with three consecutive games of DST touchdowns and a ridiculous seven total DST touchdowns on the year, the only ingredient that has kept their season from going up in flames. In spite of the elite weapons the Dolphins boast, this sets up as another classic 2022 Patriots game in which neither offense is likely to have enormous levels of drive-based success, and in which splash plays from Tyree Kill, Jalen Waddell, or, somewhat hilariously, the Patriots' defense, are the likeliest sources of potential upside. It should be noted that every Dolphins game carries potential for elevated scoring, though the likelihood of elevated scoring is likely overstated by the field, with Miami scoring 20 or fewer points in three of their last four games, and now replacing Tua with Teddy. If we take away Patricia and Judge in their miscast roles, well, every role seems to be miscast for Patricia, these are two good coaching staffs with a clear handle on how to manage the strengths and weaknesses of their teams in a must-win game on both sides of the ball, which should lead to an enjoyable real-life game for fans of competitive football without a ton of unforced errors, but is unlikely to yield a whole lot of tourney-winning upside for DFS rosters. Colts at Giants Kickoff Sunday, January 1st, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 38. Game Overview by Hilo. The playoff scenario is quite simple for the Giants. Win and in as the number six seed. That said, they can also fall out of the playoff picture entirely with consecutive losses to end the season. As in, this game carries significant meaning for New York. The Giants have been one of the most game-environment-dependent teams as far as game management goes this season meaning it is likeliest we see the bulk of volume flow through Saquon Barkley as opposed to Daniel Jones and the pass catchers. Quarterback Nick Foles will draw another start for the Colts as they limp into the offseason without Jonathan Taylor. The Colts managed just three points against a Chargers team in the bottom 10 in points allowed per game in Foles' only start of the season last week. How Indianapolis will try to win The Colts have been below league average and pass rate over expectation in every game under interim head coach Jeff Saturday which makes sense considering his philosophy is a former center in the NFL. The defense has played primarily from zone coverages and blitzes at low rates, instead electing to adapt an outside-in defensive approach designed to limit splash plays and swarm the point of reception over the middle of the field. And while that philosophy has sapped the upside from most of their games this season, a defense allowing red zone touchdowns at the third highest rate in the league has completely sunk their season. Furthermore, Nick Foles has already been named the starter at quarterback for the second consecutive week as the team struggled through three starting quarterbacks this season, Matt Ryan, Sam Ellinger, and Nick Foles. 
That move rewarded Chargers fans handsomely last week as the Colts mustered just three points against a defense that had largely struggled to keep points off the board this season. Zach Moss has handled leadback duties in each of the previous two contests for the Colts, managing snap rates of 67 and 69% and running back opportunity totals of 25 and 13. Expect Deion Jackson and Jordan Wilkins to mop up the scraps left behind by Moss as the organization appears set on finding out what they have with the return from the Naeem Hines trade. With the Colts intent on operating a conservative offense and with Moss seeing clear leadback usage, the matchup will play a key role in identifying any fantasy potential here. The good news is that the matchup is far from daunting, yielding an above-average 4.535 net-adjusted line yards metric against the Giants' defense allowing a robust 5.32 yards per running back carry this season. Second worst in the league ahead of only the Colts' previous opponent, the Chargers. The biggest problem for the Colts, and any potential for fantasy goodness, rests with the quarterback position as Nick Foles threw three interceptions and took seven sacks against the Chargers last week. We know the Giants are going to blitz heavily with varying packages, which spells trouble for the statuesque passer this week. The Colts have mixed in about 10% 12 personnel offensive alignments, instead playing primarily from 11 personnel under Saturday, which should yield elevated snap rates for Michael Pittman, Paris Campbell, and Alec Pierce this week. None can be considered with any sense of floor, but all three will be on the field enough for the potential volume to arise, not exactly a ringing endorsement. Arguably the most interesting piece from this pass offense is rookie tight end Jelani Woods, who saw another bump in snap rate and opportunities last week in the absence of Kyle Granson, the latter of whom missed his second consecutive practice on Thursday with an ankle injury sustained in Week 15. How New York will try to win The Giants had their first game since Week 3 with a pass rate over expectation greater than league average last time out against the Commanders, an opponent that clearly tilted opponents towards the air. Their opponent this week operates under different defensive principles than the Commanders do, with a low blitz rate and a propensity to give up production on the ground. Head coach Brian Dayball and offensive coordinator Mike Kafka of the Andy Reid coaching tree are two of the more capable coaches in the league in being able to adjust how they plan and manage games relative to their opponent, which means we should realistically expect a different look from this team here. It is highly likely we see a reversion to the higher rush rates and more conservative offense we saw over the middle portion of the season. Most notably, the Colts have been stout against perimeter-wide receivers all season, sixth-fewest fantasy points allowed to wide receivers this year, and the Giants continue to play real-world NFL football games with a wide receiver core consisting of Darius Slayton, Isaiah Hodgins, and Richie James. Furthering that assertion is the fact that the Colts will continue with Nick Foles as their starting quarterback in Week 17, after the team managed just three points against the Chargers team near the bottom of the league in points allowed per game, and a team also playing without the face of their franchise in Jonathan Taylor. Saquon Barkley has been leaned on heavily down the stretch for the Giants, racking up snap rates over the last month of 91, 86, 31, the blowout loss to the Eagles, in which Barkley came into the game questionable with a neck injury, and 88%. It's fair to expect more of the same with the season on the line. Furthermore, Barkley's pass game role has skyrocketed over the previous two weeks, seeing 18 combined targets during that time, effectively plugging the biggest hole in his fantasy game this season in the process. Basically, treat Saquon as a workhorse running back on a team with the season on the line this week. Matt Breida should continue in a change-of-pace role, albeit with a low overall expectation. The pure rushing matchup yields a borderline atrocious 4.12 net-adjusted line yards metric, 
with the matchup against the Colts bolstered a bit by the poor red zone performance of their defense, 30th ranked 65.91% red zone touchdown rate allowed this year, 17 total touchdowns allowed to opposing backfields. While the Giants' pass-catching core is one of the least talented on paper, all of Darius Slayton, Richie James, Isaiah Hodgins, and rookie tight end Daniel Bellinger are likely to play nearly all of the offensive snaps for a team that operates primarily from 11 personnel. Hodgins and James combined to see 23 targets last week in the close loss to the Vikings, which should take a significant hit considering the offensive setup for the Giants this week. That said, any one of the four primary pieces of the offense could theoretically see a spike week in volume considering their high snap rates, with the likeliest bet being Richie James out of the slot, due to the outside-in coverage principles utilized by these zone-heavy Colts. Considering the fact that Daniel Jones's pass volume has been almost strictly tied to game environment this season, the likeliest outcome yields a range of 28 to 32 pass attempts for New York here, far less volume than would likely be required for any pass catcher outside of Saquon Barkley to provide a fantasy score you'd be dead without. Likeliest Game Flow It is highly likely that Brian Dayball and Mike Kafka tailor their offensive game plan to a more conservative approach considering Nick Foles and the Colts are so unlikely to push the Giants this week. That should lead to increased reliance on Saquon Barkley for as long as the game environment remains under control, likely muting the fantasy and real-world expectations for the primary New York pass catchers. That idea is emphasized by the fact that the Colts have been an extremely conservative team under interim head coach Jeff Saturday, a low league average and pass rate over expectation in every game, meaning the Giants should be comfy riding their franchise running back and allowing their above-average red zone defense to keep the game tight. All of that to say, there are very few paths to this game environment developing into something conducive to team stacks and game stacks, with primary fantasy interest confined to targeted one-offs. Basically, the Colts are so unlikely to push the Giants here, and the clearest path to the game opening up would be through playoff-induced desperation from the Giants. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Saints at the Eagles. Kickoff Sunday, January 1st at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 42. Game Overview by Hilo. The Eagles can simultaneously lock up the top seed in the NFC and improve their standings in the draft with a win over the Saints as Philadelphia currently holds New Orleans' first-round selection this coming May. We should have zero concern regarding their level of commitment to winning this game. Quarterback Jalen Hurts returned to practice, still waiting on whether it was a limited session or full practice, on Thursday after missing Week 16 with a shoulder injury. Miles Sanders missed practice to begin the week with a knee injury. The Saints have not been mathematically eliminated from playoff contention, but they need to win out and receive a lot of help. They need to win out and have the Buccaneers lose out in order to make the playoffs. Chris Olave returned to a limited practice for the Saints to start the week after missing Week 16 with a hamstring injury. Eagles nickel corner Avante Maddox and offensive tackle Lane Johnson will miss time with toe and abdomen injuries, respectively. Update. Alvin Kamara missed both Wednesday's and Thursday's practice with a quadricep-slash-NIR personal designation. I originally wrote this off as likelier to be related to the personal matter, but consecutive missed practices raises alarm. How New Orleans will try to win. The Saints have a combined 34 pass attempts over the previous two weeks in wins over Atlanta and Cleveland. 
games that land second and third in lowest pass rate over expectation for New Orleans this season. Behind only the Week 6 Taysom game where Hill rushed for 112 yards and three touchdowns on just nine carries against the Seahawks. The state of the Saints team has forced their hand somewhat, with Michael Thomas and Jarvis Landry done for the season, and Chris Olave out of action last week against the Browns. Furthermore, quarterback-slash-tight-end-slash-fullback Taysom Hill has played 44 and 49% of the offensive snaps in each of the previous six games, mixing his time between numerous roles in the backfield, tight end, and in the slot. This offense is far from a standard NFL offense on paper. With Chris Olave looking likely to return after one missed game, I tentatively expect running back Alvin Kamara, wide receivers Chris Olave and Rashid Shahid, and tight end Adam Trotman, the best blocking tight end on the roster, to be the only players above 60% snap rates, with Marquez Callaway, Traquan Smith, Juwan Johnson, and Taysom Hill the remaining situational pieces. Either way you slice it, this team is a veritable fantasy disaster. Alvin Kamara should continue as the unquestioned lead back, albeit in a role lesser than other lead backs around the league. Veteran David Johnson was elevated from the practice squad for the third time last week, leaving the organization with the decision on whether to sign him to the active roster or utilize another presence as the change of pace back this week. The Saints also have Dwayne Washington, who missed the first two practices of the week with an illness, and Inyo Benjamin, who has been cut by two teams this season on the roster. Kamara has struggled mightily with efficiency this year, managing only 3.9 yards per carry and 5.0 yards per touch, 54th and 24th respectively. He has also scored only four touchdowns, three of which came in one game. The matchup yields a slightly above average 4.49 net adjusted line yards metric against an Eagles opponent ranked first in the league in both DVOA against the pass and yards allowed per pass, but just 19th in DVOA against the run. The Saints' pass game is tricky to figure out on a weekly basis due to the heavy rotation of situational players, with all of Marquez Calloway, Traquan Smith, Chris Olave, Rashid Shahid, Juwan Johnson, and Taysom Hill likely to be mixed and matched throughout the game. Expect Olave and Shahid to have the best chances at snap rates conducive to GPP consideration, but the matchup could not be worse against a top-three secondary, arguably the top secondary in the league depending on who you ask. The clear funnel through the air is to the slot due to the presence of Darius Slay and James Bradbury and the absence of nickel corner Avante Maddox. But the problem is the Saints don't have a true slot wide receiver nor a defined slot role in their offense. Consider any New Orleans pass catcher a wide range of outcomes play with upside necessitated by playoff desperation induced volume potential. How Philadelphia will try to win. As we've seen over the previous month of play, Nick Sirianni and the Eagles are one of the most dynamic teams in the league, with the talent, scheme, and coaching wherewithal to adapt to what their opponent gives them. You also get the same information by looking at their weekly PROE values, which closely resemble a Richter scale or impulse monitor, more than you'd expect it to be varying PROE values throughout the season, as in, they are all over the place. That said, there are multiple variables to consider here. 1. The health of Jalen Hurts, who missed last week with a shoulder injury to his throwing arm. 2. The health of Miles Sanders, who missed practice on Wednesday but returned to a limited session on Thursday. And 3. A matchup with the Saints who have fallen from grace against the run and been above average against the pass. 
Taking those three primary variables into account, it's likeliest we see the team revert to a more balanced run offense here, with the understanding that the Saints typically utilize man coverages at an above-average rate, and all of A.J. Brown, Devonta Smith, and Dallas Goddard absolutely annihilate man coverages this season. Like, those three are all in the top 15 in PFF grade against man this year, of qualified pass catchers. That's absurd. The ground game has a bit of uncertainty surrounding it due to the addition of Miles Sanders to the injury report. That said, he returned to a limited session on Thursday. The biggest aspect of the game plan likeliest to be influenced by his health is the dispersal of rushing volume as opposed to offensive design, as Sirianni and the Eagles have proven trust and comfort with both Kenneth Gainwell and Boston Scott. Sanders has been held between 50% and 60% snap rates in 10 of 15 games played this season, with five spike weeks in the 65 to 74% range. We know the drill with Sanders by now from a fantasy perspective. He always carries 100 yards and two touchdown upside on a high-powered offense, but will likely never see the requisite workload to blow that threshold out of the water, considering the routine involvement of Gainwell and Scott paired with the rushing acumen of quarterback Jalen Hurts, particularly in the red zone. The matchup yields an above-average 4.52 net-adjusted line yards metric against a New Orleans defense seeding 23.0 DK points per game to opposing backfields. Finally, Jalen Hurts has seven rushing scores in his last six games. The Saints have been relatively static in their defensive alignments this season, ranking top 10 in percentage of snaps to come from man coverages with a narrow distribution band, small standard deviation. As we touched on above, this Eagles team has absolutely destroyed man coverages this season, with A.J. Brown checking in as PFF's top-graded pass catcher against man, Devonta Smith checking in 11th, and Dallas Goddard checking in 15th among pass catchers with a minimum of 10 targets against that coverage. I can't remember a team being as dominant against one broad primary coverage as the Eagles have been against man this season. That should allow the team to layer in targeted passing work into a ground-heavy offensive approach, which spells massive trouble for the Saints this week. All three of those primary pass catchers should see near every down rolls on a highly condensed pass offense, with Kez Watkins likely to land in the 50-65% to 65% snap rate range dependent on the team's rate of usage of 12 personnel. It has ranged between 20 and 40% most of the season. Likeliest Game Flow The likeliest game flow very clearly involves the Eagles dictating this game on their terms, with a clear caveat. The Eagles are a bit banged up after enjoying relative health throughout the season, with quarterback Jalen Hurts attempting to return from a missed game due to a throwing shoulder injury. Miles Sanders missing practice to start the week with a knee injury, nickel corner Avante Maddox out with a toe injury, and offensive tackle Lane Johnson out with a torn tendon in his abdomen. That said, the Eagles have every motivation to win this game, as a win would simultaneously lock up the top seed in the NFC, and the playoff bye that goes along with it, and improve the first-round pick the Eagles received from the Saints in the upcoming draft. As far as the motivation factor goes, this is tops on the week. That said, the Saints have been borderline anemic on offense of late, making it increasingly likely they turn to desperation at some point in this game. The Panthers at the Buccaneers kick off Sunday, January 1st at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 40.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson This is essentially an early playoff game, with the NFC South Division title on the line, and neither team in contention for a wild-card berth. 
The Panthers dominated the first meeting between these teams with a 21-3 victory that turned their season around. Sam Darnold has been a highly efficient quarterback since entering the lineup in Week 12. These offenses have very different approaches in terms of both play calling and tempo. How Carolina will try to win The Panthers' season has been a whirlwind as they started out looking like potentially the worst team in the league, fired their head coach after five games, traded their best offensive player shortly after, and have since pulled things together to be firmly in contention for the NFC South Division crown. The Panthers can win the division if they win their last two games, but will be eliminated from contention if they lose this week in a matchup against a Bucks team that they thoroughly dominated earlier this year. Sam Darnold has been under center for the Panthers since week 12 and ranks second in the NFL in EPA, expected points added, per play among all quarterbacks during that time frame, behind only Patrick Mahomes. The caveat to that, of course, is the fact that Darnold has only dropped back to pass on 40% of his snaps during that time frame, which is the lowest rate in the league. The Panthers' formula during this stretch, during which they have a 3-1 record, has been a heavy dose of the running game with a slow and methodical approach while scheming short area targets for Darnold to act in a game manager role and keep the game in front of him. Darnold had his best statistical start last week against the Lions' poorest secondary, but is in for a tougher test this week against a Bucks defense that has been very tough against the pass this season. The Panthers' success has clearly coincided with pounding the ball through their running backs, and we should expect much of the same this week as their surprising run at the playoffs is on the line. Deontay Foreman and Chuba Hubbard act as a great complementary duo in the backfield, with Foreman acting as the hammering big-bodied running back who pounds the defense and has the ability to break long runs, while Hubbard excels in space. The Panthers will once again hope to control tempo and field position in this game through a heavy dose of their backfield and schemed easy looks for Darnold, although the speed of the Bucks' defense could make things tricky for them in creating completions, as the lack of downfield threat that their offense currently presents will effectively shrink the field for them. How Tampa Bay Will Try to Win The Bucks continue their death march of a season that has been excruciating to watch, But somehow, if they can pull out one more victory, they have a chance to ride the best postseason quarterback of all time to a deep playoff run. The Bucks' record really doesn't tell the story of how they have played recently. At first glance, they are 2-2 in their last four games, which seems reasonable for a team with an overall record of 7-8. Upon further review, however, their two wins were against the Saints, 6-9, and and the Cardinals, 4-11. and And in both games, the Bucks had to come back from double-digit deficits in the last 10 minutes of the game. While their two losses were a 28-point destruction at the hands of Brock Purdy and the 49ers, and a loss to the Bengals, where they were outscored 31-6 in the second half. While Tom Brady's presence in the recent history of this franchise makes one want to believe there is some hope, the reality that this team is a couple of bounces away from being 5-10 and 10 right now is a sobering thought. The Bucks rank 5th in the NFL in pass rate and 6th in situation-neutral pace of play. Their running game has been consistently inefficient all season, and their lack of explosive plays through the air has left them as a dink-and-dunk outfit that has no other real option besides pushing pace and trying to find edges against defenses, hoping they can attack short and intermediate areas of the field and pick up enough third-down conversions to sustain some scoring drives. 
If you look at the offenses that rank highly in both pass rate and pace of play, most of the teams you see are among the most explosive and high-scoring offenses in the league. However, the Bucks have scored 23 points or less in 14 of their 15 games this season. The Panthers' defense is middling against the run, and after a solid start to the year against the pass, has dropped to 26th in Football Outsiders' pass defense DVOA rankings. Carolina plays primarily zone coverage, which should allow the Bucks' strong group of veteran receivers to find holes against a secondary that is missing multiple starters and has been beaten consistently by the teams they have faced that throw the ball at a high rate, although that group of teams has been small. The combination of the Bucks' dink-and-dunk approach to the passing game and the Panthers' zone coverage, along with the solid Panthers' run defense against a lackluster Bucks' running game, sets up a very clear approach for the Bucks with another high-volume passing game that fails to push the ball downfield. Likeliest Game Flow This game sets up very similarly to many of the Bucks' games from this season, with their defense being good enough to keep anyone except the elite offenses from scoring many points, and their offense lacking explosiveness or consistency to pull away on the scoreboard. Only four Bucks games this season have gone over this game's total of 40.5 points, while five of their games have had a combined 30 points or less. The four games referenced where more than 40.5 points were scored are the only four games in which Tampa Bay faced an opponent whose offense is ranked in the top 10 in Football Outsiders DVOA. The Panthers' offense is ranked 26th in this category. We should expect the Bucs to once again struggle scoring points, and the Panthers to be content slowing the game down and staying close against an opponent who hasn't shown an ability to build a lead all season long. Both offenses should be able to move the ball somewhat, but drives will be prolonged and more likely to end in field goals than touchdowns, which should lead to a low-scoring affair that stays relatively tight well into the second half. The Browns at the Sasquatch. Let's face it, that would have been a much better name than the Commanders. Kickoff Sunday, January 1st at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 40.5. Game Overview by Hilo The Commanders will turn back to Carson Wentz at quarterback after he suffered a thumb injury and was subsequently benched in favor of Taylor Heineke. Washington currently clings to dear life in the seventh and final playoff spot out of the NFC, only half a game ahead of Seattle, Detroit, and Green Bay. The Browns have nothing to play for this week, outside of spoilers and the potential for additional reps as they figure out where their franchise is headed in the future. A shift in defensive philosophy from the Commanders over the second half of the season should filter pass production to the areas of the field that the Browns are likeliest to attack, which is the short-to-intermediate middle of the field. That sets up Amari Cooper and David Njoku well to continue in high-volume roles. The likeliest scenario yields a muted game environment, but there is an interesting angle that would open things up substantially. Antonio Gibson apparently emerged from Week 16's loss with a sprained knee, causing him to miss practice on Wednesday. How Cleveland will try to win The Browns have scored three offensive touchdowns across Deshaun Watson's four starts with the franchise. Furthermore, they've scored on just 25% of their red zone trips with Watson at the helm. They have maintained an emphasis on the run as only one of four games have come with an above-average pass rate over expectation and that one just barely got there. They have struggled through a lack of downfield ability, resulting in a one-dimensional offense that struggles with efficiency. Other than that, the $230 million was well spent. Kidding, y'all. Apologies to any Browns fans in the building. 
Somewhat anecdotally, their defense is likely to get more credit than they deserve over those four Watson starts, after scoring three defensive and special teams touchdowns against the Texans, holding the Bengals to 23 points on the road, beating the Ravens 13-3, and holding the Saints to 17 points. The context of those games includes a reeling Texas opponent, a Ravens team with Tyler Huntley at quarterback that inexplicably went away from the run while averaging 7.1 yards per tote, 6.9 yards per carry allowed to one of the least efficient backs in the league, looking at you, Joe Mixon, and hosting the Saints in the third coldest game in Browns history in Cleveland. All of that to say, this team is clearly still trying to figure things out offensively, and their defense is not performing to the level that perception likely indicates. Expect the Browns to start with a slow pace of play, 24th ranked first half pace of play, elevated rush rates, and a passing game primarily confined to the short areas of the field until otherwise forced, ultimately coming down to how effective the commanders can be with the change back to Carson Wentz at quarterback. Nick Chubb has been kept between 50% and 63% of the offensive snaps in 12 of 15 games played this season, with the three outliers coming in a 38-15 blowout loss to the Patriots in Week 6, 44%, a 39-17 blowout loss to the Dolphins in Week 10, 48%, and a 13-3 victory over the Tyler Huntley-led Ravens in Week 15, 70%. Furthermore, Chubb managed more than 4.7 yards per carry in eight of his first nine games this season and has not gone over 4.7 yards per carry in any game since Week 10. Expect the classic 1A-1B snap rate split between Chubb and Kareem Hunt to end the season, with the former likelier to see additional opportunities in neutral to positive game scripts and the latter likelier to see additional opportunities in negative game scripts. The matchup yields a well-below-average 4.2 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Washington defense holding opposing backfields to just 4.03 yards per carry this season, 10th fewest in the league. Deshaun Watson has had games of 4.4, 5.8, 6.0, and 6.6 yards per attempt across his four starts this season, highlighting how much the Browns have struggled to attack downfield with Watson under center. The inability to work downfield has translated to Watson relying on the pass catchers that win within the first few yards of the line of scrimmage, which helps to explain the high reliance on both Amari Cooper and David Njoku this far. Expect that trend to continue this week against one of the more pass-funnel defenses in the league. The Commanders started the season with top 10 man coverage rates, but have flipped the script over the second half of the season, running zone coverages at a top 10 rate. The shift in defensive alignment should theoretically serve to filter pass game production to the shorter areas of the field, which already aligns with how the Browns are likeliest to attack through the air. Consider Amari Cooper and David Njoku solid bets to lead the team in targets in what could develop into double-digit target volume. Most notably, Njoku has played 94% of the offensive snaps, or more, in each of his last three games as a true all-around tight end. Rookie wide receiver David Bell operates primarily from the slot and would be the player likeliest to see his snap rate and role influenced by game environment, with tight end Harrison Bryant likeliest to see variable usage and Donovan Peoples-Jones operating in an every-down role on the perimeter. How Washington Will Try to Win There has been an appreciable difference in offensive design from the commanders with Taylor Heineke at quarterback compared to Carson Wentz. The easiest way to highlight those differences is to compare the advanced metrics from each quarterback this season. Heineke holds a 0.5 deeper intended air yards per pass attempt value, 20% deeper completed air yards per completion value, and 24% deeper completed air yards per pass attempt value. 
as in Wentz works far shallower than Heineke has this season. It should then make sense that Curtis Samuel averaged 8.33 targets per game with Wentz at quarterback to start the year, and only 4.25 targets per game with Heineke at quarterback. Carson Wentz also averaged 42 pass attempts per game in his five full games of starters duties compared to the 30 pass attempts per game for Heineke over the eight games in which he played the full game. Another consideration is the fact that Ron Rivera is one of the better game planners in the league, but is one of the worst game managers, meaning his team typically performs well when they are able to execute their game plan coming in. The problem is that we have very clear splits in how the team operates with the different quarterbacks, but we also have a very clear declining trend in PROE over the second half of the season. We also know that the Browns have been gashed on the ground all season, presenting a very clear run-funnel matchup for the Commanders. Finally, we know that the Commanders are still in control of their own destiny as far as the playoff picture in the NFC goes. If they win out, they go to the postseason. In all, we really don't know how Ron Rivera will choose to approach this game with so many variables at play. Lead back Brian Robinson holds a paltry 3.9 yards per carry value and a 4.1 yards per touch value this season, 53rd and 51st, respectively. But the team has clearly shifted their offensive identity to be built around the plotting back over the second half of the season. Whether that is likely to change with the quarterback change remains to be seen, particularly considering a matchup with the Browns defense that can be beaten on the ground. Antonio Gibson missed practice on Wednesday with a sprained knee, but the team introduced journeyman running back Jonathan Williams to the mix in last week's blowout loss to the 49ers, making it likely that Robinson is not tasked with an immense snap rate regardless of the game day status of Antonio Gibson. The matchup on the ground yields a well-above-average 4.63 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Browns team allowing 27.8 DK points per game to opposing backfields, third-worst in the league. Another relative unknown is how to expect the Commanders to operate from a personnel alignment perspective after the team started the season operating almost exclusively from 11 personnel, but have ramped up their 12 personnel utilization to about 30% over the second half of the season. The only thing we can be sure about is the likely correlation between elevated 12 personnel rates and increased rush rates during that time, which carries a wide range of potential outcomes, as we've discussed in multiple spots here already. As in, personnel groupings and PRO values could be tied more closely to the starting quarterback, or they could be a concerted effort to manage games more neutrally over the second half of the season. We have no way of knowing where the truth lies, only that we've seen this team operating differently in multiple splits this season. Terry McLaurin is the clear top wide receiver, but has surpassed four times his Week 17 salary only once all season. Jahan Dodson is legitimately in the conversation for most pro-ready wide receiver from the stacked 2022 class, as he has scored seven times in just ten healthy games. Curtis Samuel is Carson's safety blanket and saw increased utilization earlier in the season with Wentz at quarterback. Logan Thomas is healthy and saw his highest target total of the season last week. There's just a lot going on here. Finally, the high zone rates of the Cleveland defense have forced a below-average 7.6 defensive ADOT this season. Likeliest Game Flow It will be interesting to see how Ron Rivera manages this game, considering the commanders still control their own destiny in the NFC playoff picture. It's quite simple for them. Win out and secure a playoff berth. We've seen the quarterback change on the horizon for the previous two weeks with the comments Rivera has given to the media, so it should come with little surprise that Carson Wentz is back starting for Washington. That said, 
we've seen a rather conservative approach to game management from the commanders this season, which would serve to limit the overall appeal from this game environment considering the state of the Browns organization. As in, the Browns are more than content to continue in their conservative offensive approach for as long as they are allowed to, leaving the likeliest scenario from this one a relative slugfest. The other side of that coin is the potential for Ron Rivera to come out guns a-blazing as he looks to secure the team's spot in the postseason, which should be considered the likeliest path to this game opening up into something worthy of more than a simply a one-off consideration. Hurting that potential is the relative weakness of the Browns' run defense, which could serve to influence Rivera's game plan coming in. Overall, the likeliest scenario yields a poor overall game environment with two caveats. One, there are a few spots that carry elevated expected volume worthy of one-off consideration on a large slate. And two, there is a path to the game environment opening up, which is likeliest to come via the commanders beginning the game with an aggressive mindset. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The 49ers at the Raiders kick off Sunday, January 1st at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 42. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Jarrett Stidham has a career passing rating of 52.8 and will start for the Raiders this week against arguably the best defense in the league. This should go well. The 49ers have locked up the NFC West division title. They can finish no lower than the third seed and have an outside chance to move up as high as the number one seed. San Francisco is averaging 31.5 points per game in games that quarterback Brock Purdy has played in. The Raiders' defense ranks 31st in the league in Football Outsiders DVOA, while ranking in the bottom 10 in both yards per play and points per game allowed. How San Francisco will try to win Many were concerned about where the 49ers' season would go when Trey Lance went down in Week 2. After making amends with Jimmy Garoppolo and some ups and downs early in the season, the 49ers seemed to have things on track when he was also lost for the season. As they turned to 7th-round rookie quarterback Brock Purdy to replace Jimmy G, a lot of people thought San Francisco's season was toast. Shockingly, however, the 49ers' offense has been all systems go and has played at its highest level of the season since Purdy took over. The 49ers have won their last four games by an average of 17.3 points and have scored over 30 points three times, the same amount of times they scored over 30 points in their first 11 games combined. We have all been aware of how dominant the 49ers' defense can be, but their recent explosion of offensive balance and efficiency has them in prime position to make a deep playoff run, and in some people's minds, they are the team to beat in the NFC. The 49ers' offense under Kyle Shanahan is a run-based scheme that looks to stretch defenses both horizontally and vertically, while getting the ball in the hands of players who are great at breaking tackles and making plays. This week, they face one of the worst defenses in the league, and a franchise that has made several moves this week, effectively waving the white flag on the season. As I expected last week, the 49ers cut back on Christian McCaffrey's usage to limit the physical toll he takes heading into the playoffs. Their overall play-calling rates stayed relatively consistent. They just gave about a third of the running back carries to Tyrion Davis-Price. The 49ers are likely to get Debo Samuel back this week, adding to their dominant skill position stable of CMC, 
Brandon Ayuk, and George Kittle. Kittle has looked like possibly the best tight end in the league whenever Samuel has been out over the last couple of years, but Samuel's return likely leaves San Francisco more balanced, and their likely high level of offensive success early in this game against a lame duck opponent should allow them to manage reps and limit the hits that all their key players take. How Las Vegas will try to win The Raiders' season has been a series of gaffes and unfortunate runouts, some of them bad luck and some of them the Raiders did to themselves. Eight of the Raiders' nine losses have been by one score, and most of them have come down to the last possession, with the Raiders botching things. It all came to a head this week with the Raiders' decision to bench starting quarterback Derek Carr for the rest of the season to ensure he does not get injured, a move that signifies they intend to cut or trade Carr this offseason. While Carr has been far from great this year, the decision seems a bit rash as the Raiders have been competitive all year, and the NFL is a fluky game where things can break a lot of different ways. The Raiders' defense has been awful this season, and their offense dealt with several key injuries, yet Carr had them in position to win every single week. There is an alternate universe where four or five plays go differently, and the Raiders are leading the AFC West. Alas, it's not my job to make these decisions, but rather examine the impact of them. For this week, the Raiders' decision to bench Carr effectively signals to everyone in the organization that they are giving up on the season, while they still have a mathematical chance at making the playoffs. The Raiders have had a pretty conservative offensive attack all season, and the dominant 49ers defense plus Stidham's lack of experience lead me to believe they will tighten things up even more in this matchup, but that is unlikely to go well against the top-run defense in the league. It remains to be seen if other veteran players will also be made inactive, but it does seem reasonable that they would preserve players they view as long-term assets and or those who are owed significant amounts of money, as well as any others they intend to cut ties with like they did with Carr. The nature of the quarterback position gave us the car news early in the week, but there could be a lot more changes in how this Raiders offense looks this Sunday that we aren't aware of until the game starts. Their approach, however, will likely be to protect Stidham with the running game and short area passing, as they will try to get the ball out of his hands quickly and give him open first reads rather than letting him get swallowed up by a very good 49ers pass rush. Likeliest Game Flow The likely way that this game plays out is pretty straightforward and direct. One has to think that Jared Stidham will be overwhelmed against arguably the best defense in the league, especially considering how locked in the 49ers will be at this point in the season, as they are still fighting hard for the number one or number two seed. The 49ers should be able to move the ball effectively on the ground, and their passing game concept should exploit an undisciplined Raiders secondary while their elite defense should give them several short fields early that allow them to run up a big halftime lead and coast from there. The 49ers may take this opportunity to rest key players in the second half, although the nature of their scheme and depth of their roster should allow them to continue to control this game on both sides of the ball. The Jets at the Seahawks. Kickoff Sunday, January 1st at 4.05 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 42.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson For all intents and purposes, this is a playoff game for both teams. The Jets' offense will look to get back on track, with Mike White returning to the lineup in a matchup with a very beatable Seattle defense. Both teams have fallen apart over the second half of the year, with losses in five of their last six games. 
The Jets' defense could pose a significant problem for a Seattle offense that is dealing with a litany of injuries. How New York Will Try to Win The Jets' season has been a roller coaster ride of epic proportions as they've started three different starting quarterbacks and moved swiftly in and out of playoff contention in the AFC as the season went on. They are still alive for a playoff berth, but need to win both of their remaining games and get some help in order for that to happen. They will get Mike White back under center this week, and he has been by far their most efficient QB. He will be going up against a Seahawks defense that has struggled most of the season, but provides a difficult road environment in Seattle. The Jets' identity is built primarily on their defense, which has been a borderline elite unit all season. However, during White's starts, the Jets have shown a greater propensity to throw the ball and be aggressive while showing an increase in overall efficiency in all phases of their offense. The Seahawks' defense has had moments of being exploited both on the ground and through the air. During Mike White's three starts, he averaged over 300 passing yards per game, and the Jets have a very talented trio of wide receivers in Garrett Wilson, Elijah Moore, and Corey Davis to go along with multiple running backs and tight ends who are capable of receiving threats. I would expect the Jets to get back to opening things up the way they did in White's earlier starts, while attacking a Seattle defense that has not held an opponent under 20 points in two months. The Jets have a ferocious defense and can truly tee off on opponents when they are able to build a lead, and the insertion of White in the starting lineup is precisely for the fact that he gives them the ability to do just that. I expect an aggressive approach from New York early this game. White's ability to distribute the ball to his playmakers like a point guard should work very well against the Seahawks. How Seattle Will Try to Win The Seahawks are coming off an ugly loss in Kansas City last week, but should be healthier and playing at home as they approach a must-win game. Seattle is in a very similar position to the Jets, needing to win both of their remaining games and get some help in order to make the playoffs. The Seahawks have a very winnable game at home against the Rams in Week 18, so it is feasible that this week's matchup will make or break their attempt to make the playoffs in their first year without Russell Wilson. Seattle will also likely be welcoming Tyler Lockett back to the lineup after a one-game absence with a finger injury. The Seattle offense will likely have tough sledding this week, as they face a Jets defense that ranks top 10 in the league against both the run and the pass, and has only given up more than 22 offensive points to an opponent once since Week 3, ranking 4th in the league in scoring defense. The Seahawks' offense has three primary weapons in DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, and Kenneth Walker. Lockett and Metcalf combined for one of the largest target shares of any receiving duo in the league, with Metcalf developing his game this year as a big-bodied possession receiver in the intermediate areas of the field, rather than the almost strictly vertical route tree he ran in the past. Meanwhile, Lockett is an elite separator and is moved around the formation often and challenges defenses at various levels. Jets rookie cornerback Sauce Gardner has been a top 3 CB in the league this year and specializes in locking down perimeter receivers. While Metcalf has proven he can win any matchup, he is likely to face off with Gardner on a high percentage of his routes. Geno Smith has been extremely accurate this season and his skill set has thrived by finding open receivers with separation and having great ball placement. So Gardner's presence will likely funnel the Seahawks' passing game to other areas of the field, as he is elite at forcing contested throws. 
The Jets' run defense has also been terrific this season, and it will make consistently moving the ball that way difficult, making Seattle's best means of moving the ball likely being through short area passing game concepts, while mixing in the occasional shot play to loosen things up against an elite defense. Likeliest Game Flow Despite being favored in this game, Seattle seems unlikely to pull away to a lead of any significance early in the game. The strength of the Jets' defense and their likely rise in offensive competence and efficiency with Mike White under center will make it difficult for Seattle to take over early in this game. Seattle's own defensive issues also give New York a good chance to build a lead and take control while letting their defense play from a position of strength. Seattle is top 10 in the league in pass rate over expectation, and their tough matchup for the running game likely points them in that direction again, while the Jets have been far more pass-heavy in Mike White's starts, a combination that should combine for increased play volume even if it doesn't result in a high-scoring affair. With so much on the line for both teams, we may see conservative play calling early in the game, and I would expect a low-scoring first half or a game in which New York jumps out to a lead, with the scenario that plays out likely to depend on how well the Jets can move the ball on the road in White's first game back. The Vikings at the Packers kick off Sunday, January 1st at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 48. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Minnesota has wrapped up the NFC North title and could finish anywhere between the number one and number three seed, depending on how it finishes the year. Green Bay has been heating up recently and likely needs to win its last two games to have a chance at making the playoffs. These two teams last met in week one, when the Vikings won in a dominant fashion with a 23-7 victory. The Packers' run defense and the Vikings' pass defense are clear weaknesses that each team can exploit. How Minnesota will try to win Minnesota may be the biggest poser we have seen from a 12-3 team in many years, as they barely have a positive point differential for the season despite a relatively mundane schedule, and they have looked very beatable in recent weeks as they lost handily to the Lions, narrowly squeaked by the Giants, Jets, and Vikings, and needed the greatest comeback in NFL history to defeat the Jeff Saturday-led Colts. Kirk Cousins has continued to be very up and down, with the downs mostly coming against high-end opponents and or in primetime games. And the Vikings' defense has been abysmal for what you would expect from a team with their record this deep in a season. All of those things are reflected, however, in the fact that the Vikings are underdogs against a team with a losing record who they thoroughly dominated in all phases in Week 1. If you could go back in time and tell anyone who watched that game that the Vikings would be healthy with a 12-3 record at this point in time, and getting 3.5 points from that same Packers team, they would likely put a small fortune on the Vikings. In the first matchup between these teams, it was Justin Jefferson who stole the show. The Vikings moved him all over the formation and got him matched up with linebackers and safeties, while also creating enough confusion in Green Bay's defense to where Jefferson was left uncovered multiple times. Star cornerback Jair Alexander has openly discussed his desire to shadow Jefferson and call his Week 1 performance a fluke when talking to the media this week. The Packers' defense will be left with a predicament, as they will have to decide if they allow the Vikings to get Jefferson in whatever matchups they choose, or if they want to change up their scheme from what they've done all year. Alexander has rarely shadowed or gone in the slot for this one matchup. 
While Alexander is a great player, there is no guarantee he will shut down Jefferson, and if they do shadow him, they will effectively be deciding to leave him one-on-one coverage for most of the game. Something that could also prove to be a problem against what most people consider to be the best receiver in the game, who has totaled 47 targets in his last three games. Likewise, a change in their scheme would likely leave them open in many other areas, as the Vikings have several weapons in their arsenal, with TJ Hawkinson and KJ Osborne each having a monster game under their belts recently, and Adam Thielen always being capable of making high-leverage plays despite his aging skill set. The Vikings' running game has struggled to consistently produce this season, but the Packers' bottom-ranked run defense should provide some potential for them to get things going in that area as well, and their underrated offensive line should give Dalvin Cook, who has destroyed the Packers throughout much of his career, some room to run. The ability of the Vikings to have an effective running game and the dilemma that Jefferson puts on the Packers' defense should put Kirk Cousins in position to have a very good game. His well-documented struggles have come primarily in spots where he was asked to do too much in predictable situations against good defenses. And if the Vikings are able to get things going on the ground, then Cousins should be able to operate from a clean pocket and dissect a Green Bay defense that was being lit up by the Dolphins' play-action passing prior to Tua Tagovailoa taking a hit that we now know concussed him. How Green Bay Will Try to Win The Packers' comeback story rolls along this week as they look for redemption from their embarrassing Week 1 loss to their division rival. While their recent run has many excited, the reality is that their first two wins were against the Bears and the Rams, while last week they appeared to be in danger of being run out of the building before the Dolphins' offense inexplicably hit the brakes in the second half. We now know that Miami's quarterback was playing concussed, which explains a lot. That being said, the Packers' defense still made plays when they needed to, and momentum is a very real thing in the NFL. At this point, it doesn't matter how or why they are where they are. What matters most is that the Packers are starting to believe they can salvage their season. We should expect a locked-in group on both sides of the ball from a team that has been highly successful the last three seasons. The Packers' offense plays at one of the slowest rates in the league, and they are in the bottom half of the league in pass rate, with their offense being run primarily through their talented running back duo. Their top two offensive playmakers are injured, as Aaron Jones is battling an ankle injury that limited his usage last week, and star rookie wide receiver Christian Watson injured his hip and missed most of the second half of the Miami game, and has yet to practice this week. I would expect Jones to play and split running back work with A.J. Dillon, while Watson is likely to miss this game or be very limited if he is cleared before game time. This should put a lot on the shoulders of Rodgers and Dillon, with the Packers looking to control the game and take an early lead to protect their porous run defense and make Kirk Cousins predictable so they can force him into mistakes. Aaron Rodgers will milk the play clock and find weaknesses in a Vikings defense that has been picked on all season, while occasionally picking up the pace to catch them off guard in his home environment where he can control the crowd and create confusion for the defense. The Vikings' secondary has been burned often this season, and with Jones battling an injury and Dylan being more of a grinder at running back, Rodgers may shoulder a bigger load this week than we have seen from him most of the year. Intermediate routes and some calculated deep shots should be what we expect when the Packers drop back to pass, with dump-offs to the backs and some underneath work for Randall Cobb being used as a safety valve, an extension of the running game. 
The Packers will want to be somewhat aggressive early to take control of the game so they can pick their spots downfield and lean on their running game as the game wears on. Likeliest Game Flow This game is likely to live up to its billing as one of the top game environments of the week. The Vikings have played 15 games this season, and 10 of them have had points totals of 49 or more, with their last five games averaging 58.2 points, and an average margin of victory of 5.8. 11 of the Vikings' games this season have been decided by one score. The methodical nature of the Packers' offense and the injuries among their most explosive players makes it unlikely they are able to jump out to a big early lead. The Vikings' explosive offense and the matchup issues they provide to the Packers' defense also makes it unlikely Green Bay can hold them from scoring for extended periods. These ingredients all combine for a recipe of a game that should be competitive and have scoring on both sides, but may take a bit to truly take off. The obvious caveat here is that the Vikings have been mistake-prone at times, and a couple of early turnovers can flip a game on its head quite quickly. Green Bay's experience in big spots like this, desperation to keep its season alive, and a home field advantage makes it the team most likely to control the game. But it should be a spirited and competitive game throughout, regardless. The Vikings' offense is too explosive for the Packers to separate from, and the Vikings' defense is too poor for them to separate from Green Bay. This game has a wide range of how things could play out, but it would be very surprising if it doesn't live up to its billing as one of the top games of the week. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Rams at the Chargers. Kick off Sunday, January 1st at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 42.5. Game Overview by Pappy Austin Eckler has played about 65% of the snaps in the past month. Cam Akers has played about 75% of the snaps in the past two games. The Chargers' passing game is likely to succeed, but unlikely to post a slate-winning score. Both teams are set up well to succeed in their preferred style. The Rams' offense is in Week 3, not Week 17. How the Rams will try to win the Super Bowl drunk 5-10 and 10 Rams come into Week 17 on the verge of putting up the most futile title defense of all time. That crown is currently held by the 1999 Broncos, who went 6-10. and 10. Playoff scenarios matter for a lot of teams this week, but the Rams aren't among them. They've been eliminated for weeks, which makes them one of the more predictable teams for DFS purposes. The Rams are going to keep playing hard, meaning there shouldn't be any significant risk to them sitting players who would otherwise be starters. The Rams just beat Nathaniel can't-hack-it-hack-it out of his job, and Sean McVay would like nothing more than to finish a lost season with some momentum going into next year. Sean McVay was one of the first coaches to take advantage of playing at an elevated pace, but that has not been the case this year. Roster limitations have slowed the Rams to a sluggish speed, 27th overall, which is no fluke, 30th in situation-neutral pace. Their pace barely quickens if chasing points, 23rd when trailing. The Rams play slow in all situations, in what looks like an effort from the coaching staff to hide what has been a dismal offense. 
For perspective, the Rams' 51 points last week make up 18% of their 281 total points scored on the year. It's hard to blame McVay for trying to lean on his defense with all his best offensive players injured. The Chargers have been solid against the pass, 9th in DVOA, but brutalized on the ground, 28th in DVOA. And their DVOA ranking doesn't even tell the whole story of how weak the Chargers have been against the run. Without repeating a bunch of stats OWS readers are familiar with by this point on the season, the takeaway is the Chargers' run defense is tissue paper soft. The Chargers are one of the clearest run funnels in the league, and McVay should be more than happy to take advantage of their relative weakness, given his team's injuries in the passing game. The Rams have essentially been trying to run out the clock on the season, and this matchup will encourage them to stick with that plan of attack. The Rams' O-line hasn't been good, 22nd in adjusted line yards, but they can still win this matchup. Expect the Rams to continue to play slow, run the ball, and hope their season ends painlessly. How the Chargers will try to win. The 9 and 6 Chargers come into week 17 riding a three-game winning streak, having clinched a postseason berth last week. Brandon Staley finds himself in an interesting situation within the AFC playoff picture. His Chargers can't catch the 12 and 3 Chiefs, which means they're locked into one of the wildcard spots. The best they can do is edge out the Ravens for the fifth seed if they win out and the Ravens lose either of their last two games. Typically, there wouldn't be much of a difference between the fifth, sixth, or seventh seed, but this year, earning the top wildcard spot means you get to play the winner of the lowly AFC South. Considering the difference in facing one of Buffalo, Kansas City, Cincinnati in the first round, or getting Tennessee, Jacksonville, there is a real reward this season for finishing the fifth seed which means the Chargers will still have something to play for in this game. The Chargers play fast, second in overall pace, and they hardly ever slow down, only falling out of the top 10 in any situation when they're ahead, 16th in pace when winning. It shouldn't be a surprise to OWS readers that the Chargers are one of the fastest teams in the league. They've played fast since Staley took over, and their preferred pace, fourth situation neutral, shows that playing with tempo is a part of their offensive philosophy. There is no reason to think the Chargers will do anything other than play quickly unless they've built a large lead or made the decision to rest players. Unlikely, in my opinion. The Rams have been strong against the run, 7th in DVOA, but surprisingly weak against the pass, 20th in DVOA. The relative weakness of the Rams lines up perfectly with how the Chargers want to attack. Playoff-bound teams have developed an identity by this point in the season, and the Chargers' identity is playing fast while calling high pass play rates. That isn't going to change in Week 17, especially in a matchup that encourages passing. The Chargers' O-line hasn't been great, 21st ranked by PFF, but they've been better in pass protection, 11th in adjusted sack rate, than run blocking, 31st in yards before contact which should give them confidence in protecting against an Aaron Donaldless Rams front. This matchup should encourage the Chargers to play in their preferred method, making their game plan one of the easiest to predict on the slate. Likeliest Game Flow This game opened with a tiny total, 40.5, and has been bet up, 42, early in the week. The Chargers opened as large, negative 8.5 favorites, but that has been bet down, negative 6.5, as of this writing. The low total reflects the fact that this game has a lot of paths to being a dud, 
but the line movement shows that there is some potential to this game producing points. Both teams are set up well to attack in their preferred method, and the early week blowout line has moved to predict a more competitive one-score game. The most likely game flow is still the Chargers taking control early, slowly pulling away and forcing the Rams to abandon the run. However, if the Rams strike first, the Chargers will respond aggressively, and both teams could see success against the relative weakness of their opponent.